it's a special day today. Go on. Tell me. It's Hector's birthday. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, how is that official? Is that official? Smile on that face. Well, we think it's official. We can't remember if, he's, if it's the 17th or the 18th of August. And we keep saying, oh, we'll check his insurance, but we haven't got around to it. Uh, no, we're, we're counting today as his birthday, but it is raining very heavily here. How old is he then? He is four years old, which in four. dog years, depending on how you count it, is either 28 yeah. or like 45. Yeah. So he's through his drinking years now. He's getting into, <laughs> He's got to settle down soon, hasn't he? He's got to you know, buy a kennel and... Meet a lady dog, that kind of thing, hasn't he? Or has he been? Has he been? No, he's had the. Um, he's been. Uh, he's, yeah, he's had the the procedure. Oh um, dear. He is. He he was born and will die a virgin, Hector. <laughs> he was born a virgin. Blimey. Born a virgin will Unusual, die. Unusual, but it happened. So he is either about to enter in the prime of his life, or he is currently having a midlife crisis. So I always assumed it was seven dog years to one human year. But I read a thing in one of the Times's, either the British one or the American one, a while ago, that said that they've, they've done studies and they've worked out that dogs age in a kind of non-linear way. So from, naught, from zero to one, that's their, kind of their, their first 10 years or whatever, and then one to two is 10 to 20. But after that, they have a really long middle age. So between like two and 10, when they get old, they're, kind of just kind of, they're kind of 45, 50 forever, basically. So it, yeah, it... I think of him. I think Hector is about. I think he's basically the same age as me. He's in his mid thirties. He's a little bit grumpy. He doesn't like cats or sheep. Same as me. And, and he's still you know, a virgin. And, and still a virgin. Still very much a virgin. Why don't you I like a, sheep? I have a son, so I can laugh about that. Why don't you like sheep? Oh no, I don't. I mean, I don't dislike sheep. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to be friends with one. But so you're not Hector exactly like Hector, then, are you? Hector hates you them. Tolerate hate sheep, sheep, can't you? I didn't tolerate their existence. I mean, I accept that they're there and there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> to be fair, he hates all animals. He hates cows, horses, cats, uh, most of the dogs, sheep. Lions, hates... jaguar, panther. He doesn't like jaguar. cats. He doesn't <laughs> particularly like middle-aged women. Which is problematic for us. Mm. They, are, they, are, they are a problem in society. I doesn't actually. like lone men. Yeah. Believes that men should be in, in pairs at least at all times. So how, how do you know that he feels that? Does he bark every time he doesn't like something? Yeah, but he barks every... That, that's all he's got. Yeah, exactly, and you can tell... He's got the bark he's... and the tail wag, so what, what? You can't read into that. I can read his barks. His bar- <laughs> I can read his barks. I understand his barks. You, you know, as an owner and mm. landlord to a dog, yeah. you, you know what they're trying to tell you, don't you? Mm, if, you if you're listening, yeah. I just <laughs> if you listen. care. If yeah, you care about just it. tuned into him. I'm tuned into Hector. He's, he's, I think of him as like my, have you, have you read the His Dark Material books? No. No, you're not really a reader. Mm. Um, well, I'm a, a, a looker at pictures. Uh, that's what <laughs> I am. <laughs> I think of him as, Hugh, you must have done, you're nerdy. Uh, Gemma has, and yeah. Gemma, Gemma's watched all the, the, the yeah. TV program that has so far been made and watched those movies that were apparently terrible. I thought the movies were okay. I just had to duck out there due to a highly unsatisfactory connection. What, what movies are terrible? Uh, the His Dark Material movie, I think there was only one yes. that was made. Yeah. The Golden Compass was made, wasn't yeah. it? What's the story? I've never heard of it, so... Oh, it's really confusing, Chinch. G- genuinely, oh, it, it takes, it takes at least an hour and a half to set it up. No, it's too, too nerdy, much. Nerdy stuff, Chinch, by the sound. The third book yeah. was, I mean, it was like doing physics A-level. Oh, God. Oh, God. It wasn't entertaining in, that, in, in any traditional sense. It's basically spirit animals. Chinch, what would yeah. your spirit animal be? My sp- would probably be Jaguar. I, I presume it would be jaguar because they jaguars. I really am the human 
equivalent of a Jaguar. Live, powerful, dangerous when cornered. I mean, I mean, or dangerous from corners. <laughs> yeah, well, ah, <laughs> ah, brilliant. This is Set Beast Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, Manchester City, Rory Smith, Manchester United, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Barcelona. Oh. Uh, the food uh, is, Rory, would you like to explain your homemade cookies, which you have already done so prior to recording in the most delightful M&S way? Uh, th- these are not just any homemade <laughs> cookies. These are... Uh, soft, chewy, velvety smooth cookies uh, flavoured with toffee and I now own, did I tell you that I now own my own toffee hammer? Do we know that? I don't think we knew that, no. Oh, that, so yes, I, we did. This was a birthday present. Yeah, all right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Kate yeah. kept saying to me, what do you want for your birthday? And I kept saying the only thing that I, I have ever wanted to own is a toffee hammer and now I have a toffee hammer. I use it for all of my hammering needs, <laughs> whether it's toffee or not. That um, was the perfect illustration, by the way, of me being completely incapable of retaining useful information, yes. but remembering that Rory was given a toffee hammer for his birthday. I don't see the differentiation between those two things. <laughs> what else have you used it for? Oh, nails. Um, no, you can't, no, 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 no. You can't hammer cars. nails in with a toffee hammer. You can. Let me tell you, you can do anything. How small hammer. are the nails? It doesn't matter. It's a toffee hammer. It packs a tremendous punch. <laughs> it's the Jack Reacher of hammers. <laughs> Uh, so that's the food. Have you uh, been nailing those chocolate nails that you can buy in chocolatiers in, like, in, be- in Brussels and Bruges? Shatter one of those. Let As we all know, hammer. toffee always beats chocolate. Uh, the football is tinged. Do you know what we're talking about today? Oh, I think it, it's got to be all the hot European action and the aftermath of said hot European action. Well, not really. That might be next oh. week. Oh. read the wrong message it Have is I? time for a pep talk following so it's kind of related following of course Man- it's related it's related no, to I'm one of them to, i'm doing that one to chinch <laughs> All right. thank okay. you following manchester city's third champions league exit in three years at the quarterfinal stage the familiar narrative's got another airing pep overthinks things pep hasn't won the champions league without messi and his team in nearly a decade pep's manchester city are destined to continue their fractured relationship with european football but probably for the first time too a little more supporter hand-wringing were some city fans really calling for his head after they lost to Lyon. Is their relative failure in Europe actually all Pep's fault? Or is he suffering at the hands of heightened and perhaps overhyped expectations? We will attempt without any success whatsoever, probably to plot and even-handed and nuanced path through this particular subject. That is all to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Many of you are doing so. Thank you very much indeed to those who have. I should say at this point that we have had, I think, as none of, this, none of this is worth verifying at all, more emails about last week's pod about elite players becoming elite managers than any other episode that preceded it. This leads to two things. More work for me disappointment for more of you. Uh, We will come to some of those in a moment. But firstly, though, to this announcement. Dear SPM gentlemen, I have caught up. It is from Ewan Haig. He says, it was quite nice that my soccer story was read out on SPM 191, the episode when I finally became current. It was also nice to hear that Andy and Joao have been reunited in a Portuguese gymnasium. Uh, Following SPM from the start has been quite a journey, and I have enjoyed your podcasting company immensely. Uh, Ewan, to mark the occasion, has also sent us an SPM Select 11 of SPM episodes. The left-back episode is, fittingly, Corners. Oh. Uh, The pivot of this team is Joy, uh, which you'll remember. Mm -hmm. uh, It's a lovely sentiment from you, and even though it's an episode without the podcast's pivot actually involved in it, which is 
slightly insulting. And he signs off by saying that the manager of this particular Select 11 should be, and I quote, Big Ron, the sicky seat, a gold cat suit, <laughs> Kit Kat, classic. Um, <laughs> Thank you to you and for all his emails over the course of the last few months. Um, uh, he has also done us a very good service of reminding all new listeners that going through the back catalogue is very much worth your while. And we haven't been using you and to make that point at all over the course of lockdown. What, what can we do to kind of thank you and for, for listening to all the, the back catalogue episodes and also kind of being a sort of accidental market employee and also maybe improve his mental health after listening to us rabbit on for how many hours? That's like, what's 191 hours? Well, it's 191 hours, I'd suggest. But in days. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody can do the maths. Somebody who's, uh, whose phone isn't currently being used can... Uh, well, hang on, I'll do it. It's probably just less than 10 days, isn't it? He's been like George Martin, hasn't he? Who was the fifth Beatle. He's been the fifth SPMer for the, the course of yeah. the last few weeks. But, but we are not going to pay him, Steve. I repeat, we are <laughs> yes, not exactly. going to pay him. No, no. If, if, only we, if only we thought to bring him in to mix the episodes down as well. To be honest... Been a useful, uh, that would have been useful to Hugh in particular. If, even, if, 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 if only we thought of making some money from this. <laughs> Could we speak to the prison warder to try and get him some better treatment? He must be in prison to have this much time to listen and listen and listen. He can't live a life if he's just listening to us. Why the hell would you do it? And it's how eight much days. Time have you got on your eight days. He spent eight of a, days of a listening three to three-year sentence. So well, hang on a minute. Let's try and get that commuted. Come well, on. Well, now you've now you've now you've worked it out like that, Rory. It's taken ages. <laughs> exactly. It's much quicker. It doesn't seem that long, actually, months. does it? Yeah. Ewan has really milked this and stretched it out for as long as possible. I don't think he deserves any reward. Mm. Uh, congratulations, Ewan. You are our latest buffalo. Um, the SPM Buffalo is the exact thing that we can bestow upon you for all your efforts uh, because, frankly, it is a theme and it is also very, very cost effective. Um, next to some more bear news. Uh, firstly, from Beck Richmond, who regular listeners will know is married to a hirsute gentleman called Bear. Uh, she responds to Joe Hirsch's email last week about bears being a regular feature in continental Europe by saying, sorry to correct a fellow contributor, but Joe, bear is not currently in mainland Europe nor in southern Kent. He's in Kingston-upon-Thames and since he is a mathematician and physicist, he is offering the lovely SPM team a free lecture on potential four-sided bread shapes. Uh, just let us know. Did we decide that Chinch's carcassa was a parallelogram? We did, yeah. Last week. Eventually, yeah. Uh, we should also say that several people have been in touch to inform us that the Decatur Staley's, Rory, uh, were from Decatur, Illinois, not Decatur, Georgia, from where we have had many correspondents, uh, hence them becoming the Chicago Bears, the team local to Ewan Haig. Uh, one of them is our friend Art McGallion, who also adds this piece of information. The Staley's were so cool because they were formed as an adjunct to the Staley Manufacturing Company by Augustus Staley who, he says, is not forgotten. His company still manufactures starch indicator, and to this day, the Chicago Bears mascot goes by the name of Staley Dabair. That's, that's a nice bit of history. I like that. That's, um, What's happened to your microphone? Uh, I've changed my microphone, Hugh, because I appear to have broken my other <laughs> microphone. I'm not quite sure how. I'm so disappointed about the Decatur, Illinois story that you <laughs> threw think, your microphone to the ground. I think there's only a certain amount of wisdom that any one piece of technology can absorb. <laughs> and yours is just, it's just blown it's just, up in the face just, of your yeah. massive brain. It's just, it's, it's, it's been very difficult for it. It's, it's taken mm. on so much new information, so many just different ways of thinking, but it's, it's having some sort of meltdown. <laughs> I love the way like, it, it just about managed to creak through the elite players to elite managers episode, yeah. but a bit, of, a bit of banter about the origins of the Chicago Bears, and that was it. It had what enough. Is, I don't want to be culturally offensive, but is Decatur not quite a stupid name for a place? What does it mean? 
But it's named after a uh, a significant military gentleman. Oh, he's a he's a person. He's a chap. Yes, Decatur. I think there are two generations of Decatur's. Uh, one was uh, one was significant naval officer. I think in the uh, Ian Decatur. Yeah. Revolutionary War. Yeah. It was, as, as you know, naval ships don't have indicators, Chinch. They can turn whichever way he they created, want. He created how to signal right and left. It was uh, obviously the indicator. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so well, I'm glad that Rory is at least able to um, not do any more mic drops, which he tends to do after every point he makes, and which is probably why the, the microphone broke in the first place. But that is the end of the bear news, you'll be pleased to know. Indeed, as we reflect on your correspondence that followed last week's discussion, uh, we start with this email from Austin Stamford, who's in Chatham. New Jersey. Dear Set Piece Menu, I love the podcast. And although this email will almost assuredly be devoid of bears, I've decided to write it anyway. Baseball has seen a similar shift to soccer in recent years, with retired players being vaulted straight to the managerial job of their former team. These managers are being hired in part because they have no ingrained tactical notions of their own and will therefore allow the GM slash front office to directly control not only trades and signings, but often in-game decisions as well, replacing managers' intuition with the data they have to hand. It is true that a manager like Andrea Pirlo or Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is less likely to demand control over transfers than someone like Maurizio Sarri or Jose Mourinho. But I suspect that, given the expansion of analytics departments at top clubs, at least in some cases, decisions like this are made to allow these departments to take more tactical control behind the scenes. Austin suggests a conspiracy. That, that's probably not ridiculous. To think that they might they might be saying look actually we don't yeah we don't need a kind of a guy who's got like an overarching tactical vision when we have all this other information that we can use to define the way we play and you know we've already outsourced like recruitment and stuff to to directors of football and to and and the world at the super club level like you, you're not dropping Cristiano Ronaldo so it doesn't really matter what your tactical vision is he's going to play whether that works or not so yeah it's it's maybe a sign of, of the way the game is going. It seems that coaches are, well, certain coaches won't be, but certain coaches, the majority of coaches are more dispensable than maybe they've ever been because clubs have the overarching philosophy and coaches are slotted in and out. I suppose you've got towards the top end of European football, you may be going to have coaches like Guardiola who will say, this is, this is, you know, you get me, it's my way. It's not necessarily your way. I'll try and work with you, but you'll do it how I want to do it or you don't get me. But are those coaches becoming fewer and fewer who can actually say that? So football's becoming more like politics, just sort of like with useful idiots. <laughs> uh, mm. uh, when we, in fact, we had a number of emails from listeners in the States pointing to the fact that it is almost as hard to think of as many examples of it happening in US sports as we found it hard to get that many examples uh, from football, soccer, including from Huntington Beach, John Wood, who we remember had a similar idea to ours prior to us uh, recording last week. He can actually only think of three in all of US sports that were elite players who then became elite managers. Bill Russell and Tommy Heinsohn of the Boston Celtics uh, and Mike Ditka, who, funnily enough, won Super Bowl twenty with who, Rory? Chicago Bears. The Chicago Bears. Uh, he was also a very good player. I think a Hall of Famer for the, for the Cowboys as well. Uh, any more names, let us know. It is a challenge we are setting. Apparently, according to John, just to, to, to make sure there aren't any of these that come through, uh, and sticking with Chicago, the Bulls coach Phil Jackson and Bulls player Steve Kerr who, if you watch the re recent Michael Jordan documentary, you'll understand their significance. Uh, they played with elite teams as players, but weren't elite players themselves. So we are I discounting that, those two. It, to what extent was Steve Kerr not an elite player? And I don't know, this is... Statistically. Statistically. He, he tended he was, to contribute from the bench mm. and was a, was, was a 
uh, what would you call a, um, a, a kind of a horse for a course, uh, depending okay, yeah. on the, the match like situation, the game situation. Player. A role yeah. play, yes, that's much better. So, so um, I prefer a horse. He was literally a horse, a horse for a course. course yeah. Um, so by, the, by that standard, though, Solskjaer wasn't an elite player. No, I don't think uh, in that email earlier on from Austin that he was necessarily suggesting that it was elite player, elite manager. It was just the reduced role of the manager yeah. who might have been um, given the job at an elite no, club because no, of their involvement I mean, with that. With that, if, we, if we're saying that Steve Kerr doesn't count as someone who, because he's definitely an elite coach. If yes. if we're saying Steve Kerr doesn't count as someone who was an elite player and an elite coach, then Solskjaer by definition can't be an elite player and an elite coach, whatever he turns into be as a coach. Yes, I think he's currently neither. Yes, yes, as far as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is concerned. Completely um, irrelevant to this discussion. Yes, indeed, which is why we didn't mention him even once last week. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan has written to say this, like many of your podcasts, last week's episode highlighted the manner in which the social and cultural stratification of football echoes life and the experience of operating in other careers or workplaces. In particular, I was struck by the argument that players formed at elite clubs can better understand the culture of that group of clubs and so should be trusted to lead them whether or not their past career would suggest that they are well suited to succeeding in such roles it strikes me that there is a strong parallel here with the rather dangerous social phenomenon of self-perpetuating elites which does rather fly in the face of the concept of meritocracy for football as in other sectors says kevin such self-replicating elitism risks excluding new innovative ideas as too risky but also tends to exclude those who are deemed not to fit, whether by race, gender, etc. Such problems have always existed, of course, but they appear to be magnified as football rapidly catches up to other institutions in our age of inequality. That's from Kevin. Uh, just to add that very brief, briefly, a part of a, an email from Chris Etchingham, who says, with uh, PLO's parachuting into the hot seat, as well as Stephen Gerrard taking charge of one of Scotland's biggest clubs as his first managerial job, and Frank Lampard taking control of Chelsea after just one season at Derby, and Javi's sense of entitlement at deciding not to take the Barcelona job until a time that suits him best. Is this a case of jobs for the boys? That's from Chris Etchingham. And Kevin O'Sullivan had the previous email too. I, I prefer, rather than jobs for the boys, I prefer the theory that came from the earlier correspondence about those, those people being parachuted in because they are less likely to make wider reaching demands and that they are a useful figurehead for the operation and that things behind the scenes, decision-making. I think that that has a lot more credence and, and certainly you could sort of delve deeper into that rather than the jobs for the boys thing. Cause I, surely, surely the big clubs wouldn't make decisions on that basis. Yeah. But he's also been jobs for the boys for quite a long time anyway, in, in a different sense, hasn't it? Kind of, it's the same, the same people, the same sort of merry-go-round and the same kind of the chairman knows this person so they don't appoint that person that that's always how footballs work in 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 the sport as a as a, as a wider consideration but surely elite clubs are, are making what they believe to be the right decision even if it, it looks like there's an element of that i, I just wondered about i just wondered about the do we know how yet how juventus fans feel about perlo taking over are they saying well this is great because of who he was or are they saying well hold on a minute he needs to be a, a good coach as well for our club because he seems a very kind of fan friendly appointment, doesn't it? And all the fans would think this is a great idea, but then you look into his background, his lack of experience. Is there any concerns amongst Juventus fans that this could be the wrong decision and the wrong, absolutely the wrong person to take over? Or is it all, this is, this is great. We can understand why the club have done this. I think there's an acceptance that it's a risk. I don't, mm. I, I, I wouldn't claim to be able to speak for kind of Juventus fans, but I think there's an acceptance that it's a risk, but at the same time, and, and, and I guess a level of intrigue that, as to how it might turn out, that's probably, mm. the, probably the best way of putting it. 
I'd imagine it pacifies Juventus fans to a certain extent who were unhappy with the things under Maurizio Sarri for, for whatever reason. They probably were, want, many of them would have been unhappy with his appointment in the first place. So by bringing in a club legend, that helps deal with that. And, and potentially he will get longer, Pirlo, than somebody like Sarri would in terms of getting the fans on side if things aren't going well. As we're going to speak about later on this uh, episode, it is either your association with the club, and we did an episode on being a club man. Uh, you and Haig will tell you what episode number it was. I haven't got it to hand. Um, and uh, also the idea of being ring-fenced because you are an appointee of the board who are very much in your thrall, as might be something that we talk about with Pep Guardiola shortly. Finally, to a couple of suggestions for our Select 11. There were many on Twitter, so you can go and have a look at uh, at Set Piece Menu for some of those. This from Graham Langlands, who signs off by saying, by the way, from North Shields, but you can pretend I'm in Decatur, Georgia, or somewhere, if you want to keep up your exciting correspondence locations. <laughs> North cool Shields is good enough for you. me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he has a couple of suggestions for fullbacks, examples of which we failed to find, so just decided to have a team without them. Um, at right back, Cesare Maldini. He could play anywhere yep. across defence, mm. but I may be yep. basing his eliteness as a player on his son rather than him, which is a, an understandable misremembering, because if you were alive when Cesare Maldini was in his pomp, then uh, what are you doing listening to a podcast? <laughs> How do you even know what a podcast is? Uh, at left back, says Graham, Johan Cruyff. What's the bloody point of total football, if not for this? That's yeah. a, bit of a, it's mm. a bit of a stretch. Although they did... Um... Harry Hahn and Johnny Rep both managed, I think. I don't know how good they were. They maybe weren't the lead managers, but they... Um... You're Googling now because it's coming through that mic. Yeah, it's really loud. Can I just ask a question <laughs> on place names? Do people in America, when they hear kind of Levens, Hume, Gateshead, North Shield, are they, are they as thinking, wow, I wonder what these magical, mystical places are, as we do when we hear of American places? Is, is it, does, does it work in reverse as well? Are Americans kind of really amazed when they hear these, these fancy uh, town names? Probably not. I did a podcast for Slate yesterday, um, which was which was very enjoyable, um, and talked to one of the producers, producers beforehand about Hebden Bridge. Yes, and the the way that that I described Hebden Bridge made it sound much more exciting <laughs> than it, than it actually is. Did well, you mention nice. the unicorns? Well, it's just I'm trying to think of Hebden Bridge as being a place where there's loads of witches. That's yeah, it's full of witchcraft. Hebden Bridge is it's, it's on a ley line. You can buy crystals. It's real. It's a bit like Salem. It, well, I, no, it's, I, the, it's kind of the opposite of Salem. It's a upmarket, safe space. an upmarket Salem. <laughs> it's a safe space for witches, unlike Salem. <laughs> I have been to Salem. It is a delightful place. I love the idea that Skyscanner's uh, US search engine or whatever it is, has seen a spike in people looking for flights to Hebden Bridge since <laughs> Rory started describing it. Well, you'd fly into Leeds Bradford, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Be serious. You'd still have to go through Halifax, so it would be a problem either way. Um, and finally, to Joe Highland, who asks this. Would the pod also be able to make a select 11 of elite players, s*** managers? A few spring to mind, says Joe. Edgar Davids went from one of the world's best midfielders and FIFA 2003 cover boy to refusing to manage away games at Barnet. In fact, all of the 2003's FIFA cover stars, Giggs, Davids and Roberto Carlos, became at best average managers. Might be a bit previous on Giggs, who knows? But perhaps this curse, says Joe, could form the basis of a 10,000 word article in The Athletic. Are they talking down their word list? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That, that, that's just a short little... Uh, that's the, the, the version of your newsletter each week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Phil Neville went from a trophy-laden, if not necessarily elite career, to the David Brent of England women's football managers, <laughs> says uh, Joe. I think there's quite a competition for the David Brent of England women's managers. Um, Gary Neville, the hallmark of fullbacks, being good pundits, but not good managers. Yeah. 
Chin, she would have been an excellent manager if you'd just given it a chance. Roy Keane started well at Sunderland, but disastrous in all other coaching roles. And Bobby Charlton, a World Cup winner, a Manchester United legend, who supposedly did not like the pressure and expectation of managing Preston North End. Uh, I, it was Diego Mar- Maradona at Argentina. Did Pele? Did Pele ever manage anywhere? I'm not sure. You know, I'm not. I, I don't think he did. And no. I can't Google because I'm now on this different microphone and it's very loud. Oh, okay. But, but I don't. If he did coach, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't particularly um, glorious. I wouldn't say. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Thank you for everything for the past week. Now, we had to wait about five months longer than usual, but we are still talking to you in the aftermath of another exit at the quarterfinal stage for Manchester City in the Champions League. That is three in a row now, all characterised, it would seem, by the City crashing out of Europe trifecta, which is calamitous individual mistakes, VAR intervention, the lack thereof or no VAR at all, and the what was Pep playing at narrative. That last one actually stems from Guardiola's Bayern days, when in the first season he could have won the Champions League after doing it twice in three years with Barcelona. He admitted to overthinking his strategy for the semi-final against Real Madrid, and they were, of course, beaten. His fortunes have not improved since, culminating in his decision to play three at the back against Lyon. The reasons for which we will talk about, but the listless first half that followed seemed to set a new nadir for the Pep overthinking it storyline. But as has been written about extensively in support of the city manager and to provide some suitable context, is a man who has won what he has for Manchester City really to be criticised for a handful of games for which he might have made a tactical misstep? Is Pep actually being judged unfairly against the standards that his own success has set and those we and Manchester City fans have come to expect? Or, given those expectations, should we be drawing attention to these relative failures and asking if they are indeed setting a new standard? And are these frailties occurring a little too regularly for comfort? It is time for a pep talk. There's there's quite a lot there. There's quite a lot of different subjects. So, to an extent, that's right. Like, if you look at the the broad sweep of his career at Man City, it's really hard to say, well, you you messed up against Leon and Monaco, so you're not a great manager. And I I think it gets lost on social media, but I don't think anyone's saying Guardiola's not a good manager or not a great manager. I think people are saying that Guardiola is capable of making mistakes. And there, there appears to be a flip side to that, of the, this kind of absolute devotion among some of his like loyalists, where, where the idea that he might get anything wrong is, is total anathema. And I, I, I was kind of disappointed after the game where he kind of came out and said, that the, deci- the decisive thing in these games are not the tactics. And you think, well, hang on. You built your entire reputation, this entire kind of, it's not a myth, but like this, this whole kind of church of Pep is built on the idea that you are smarter than literally everybody else, that you are this visionary tactical manager, this person who's dropped these ideas that, that are beyond mere mortals. And now you're saying that that's not actually important. That's, it's a massive cop-out. He gets, Pep gets huge amounts of praise, deservedly so, for so much, thing, so much of the stuff that he has done, for so many of the ideas that he has, so many of the kind of the, the philosophies that he kind of embodies the natural like concurrent to that is that when he gets it wrong he not only doesn't have the credit but you assume if you're told all of this is because of all of this success is because of pep then the the only assumption can be when you don't have the success well that must be because of pep too you have you, you can't say i want the credit but not the blame it's it's really that's disingenuous and slightly cowardly to be honest and the other, the other two aspects of it are that i find it really weird that that city can a team that's kind of as well-tooled as City, that is one of the most expensive projects in history, that is 
you know, has the best manager of his gen generation in charge. It just seems a bit of a cop-out for them to say, well, you know, VAR didn't work against us. If you want VAR not to be a risk, then maybe don't be 1-0 down to Lyon for an hour. Maybe that's an idea. Maybe, you know, this is the seventh best team in France, or even if they're better than that, even only the third best team in France. Maybe you should be beating them in a one-off game, and maybe that's kind of, the, that's kind of on you, not on, on the VAR. And the final thing is, he's now not won the Champions League for nine years. That's quite a long time. Whether or not we get onto the, the nuts and bolts of the, the money, I don't know. But it, it has to be a factor in some ways when you consider the investment. But the, also the way that that investment has been made in terms of building a team to play the way that Pep wants it to play. And, and that has domestically led to huge success, which deserves the praise that has come along with it. It just seems extraordinary to me that having created something so exceptional that is beautiful to watch, clinical, devastating, and has that ability to blow teams away, that when you get to the point in the season in which you need the machine to be as well-oiled as it can possibly be, that you would not just make a tiny alteration, but huge dramatic sweeping alterations that take the players, your expensively assembled incredibly well-drilled players out of their comfort zone. I accept that there are occasional opponents along the way in which you will need to adapt, but it doesn't feel as though Leon, who deserve great credit for the way that they played, that was the time to make such massive changes to the way you go about your business that you would jeopardise your ability to overwhelm your opponents, as Manchester City are capable of doing 90% of the time. That is what ultimately I find so difficult to get my head around. And having done it before, it amazes me that somebody within Pep's inner circle isn't saying, shouldn't we just go with plan A for this one? Because more often than not, that proves to be very, very successful. Let's try and set up uh, some context for, th for those who haven't been following Manchester City's path in each of the last three Champions League to Champions Leagues to the quarterfinals. We should probably just try and illustrate what happened in those games, which lends Pep to the to the view that it's not necessarily a tactical thing, but also probably undermines that slightly. The, the it's four, isn't it? It's four because it's, Mon you, it's Monaco in the last sixteen. Mon Monaco 20, in the last sixteen. 16 yeah, yeah. That was Plan A. He tried Plan A, and it was bat beep crazy and it just yeah. went completely bonkers he, he didn't necessarily as in the same way that he did for the three quarterfinals he didn't adjust tactically against what what has basically served Manchester City before then and since then so whilst yes it is four years of lack of success relative uh, to what he would expect and what Manchester City would hope I think the three quarterfinals serve as a nice little as I said yeah. trifecta to consider the points that are now being made so if you go back to uh, Liverpool it was a crazy 10 minutes where they conceded three goals in that first leg, where essentially they were discombobulated in the same way that against Spurs, they were for about four minutes when they conceded two goals in, in the second leg. So there are these moments where clearly mentally they are not prepared for the high stakes. The fact that, uh, that they might not necessarily be in a position that they wanted to be and how they respond to that with the amount of time left in the tie. So those, those are kind of mental mistakes, issues about preparation and issues about expectations and about dealing with adversity. And then against Lyon, clearly there was a, a tactical issue where he changed the way that he wanted to play because of the 
what he felt was the strength of the opposition, their ability with the pace up front to, 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 to essentially overwhelm a slow defence that Manchester City have. But you're right to say that in all three games, he made those three quarterfinals, he did make tactical changes prior to the game happening, which then affected potentially their chance to win that game, even though the individual moments in those games probably led to the eventual demise. But at what point, and this is the question that we'll, we'll focus on for the next part, what point do individual match events that are in isolation a bit crazy, a bit in terms of occurrences, they are freak occurrences. At what point does that become a pattern because there are so many freak occurrences happening in these high stakes games? Because that surely at this point, after three out of three, where there have been freak occurrences in each and every one of those games, surely we should now start to, to think about why that is happening. Would, would Guardiola, looking at Premier League games, okay, the, the, the top end Premier League games, if he's playing against half of the Premier League, it doesn't seem to me that he would consider doing anything as, as drastically in terms of tactics than he's done against European sides. Of course, the quality of the teams they're up against is completely different. It's the Champions League, it's the latter stage as well, so the pressure is greater. Is it, is it the, the magnitude of the games which tends to force him down this road, or he decides to go down this road of really drastically changing his tactics? Yes, you get VAI, you get individual errors. That will happen to any team. But it's and, the tactical massive, changes. Huge, of course, yes. Massive individual errors. Does, does he, I don't see during the course of a Premier League season him suddenly, for any game, making this year, maybe he doesn't need to do because the opposition isn't good enough, whatever team he puts out, however he plays. He doesn't seem to do this in the domestic games. It seems to be when it comes to the crunch in the European games that he makes these, and everyone thinks, oh, wow, that's Pep, it's, it's going to work. Is it not? Oh, it hasn't worked. So is, can, it, is, it the, is it the magnitude of the games that it, not it forces him to do it, but maybe, again, he talks about overthinking it. Is, is that why these things keep happening? He tends to change for Liverpool. Uh, partly, yeah, I'm he, saying, but every other team in the Premier League generally say, changes for Liverpool. I think he's yeah. tried different stuff out against United. Uh, played, he played with back three in the League Cup, didn't he, against United? Mm -hmm. There's been a few. I think he... Does that not give further weight, though, Rory? If he, if he changes for Liverpool and he changes for Champions League quarterfinals, these are shining a light on the on the occasions which perhaps get into his head in that regard. Is he, is he feeling the pressure? Is he feel, I know he's so, well, he's so experienced. He's won, but again, he hasn't won the Champions League for nine years. He's gone to Man City, presumably major part of the plan was to win the Champions League. That's not, is he starting like anybody, any mere mortal, starting to feel the pressure? And maybe his decisions are starting to reflect that. The bigger the game is, and he obsesses about the opposition and the opposition strengths, on a game-by-game -game basis, every single team he obsesses, he spends hours, we are led to believe, pouring over uh, footage of the team that they're about to play so that he can assess their, their strengths to try and make sure that at least, at the very, very least, and this is why this whole kind of thing is about Guardiola being an essentially defensive coach because he prioritizes how to stop the opposition's strengths in, its, in, in the initial phase of him trying to prepare for a game. But when the, when the stakes get higher and higher, he seems to focus so much on the strengths of the opposition, given particularly when it's a, a knockout game. And that was enhanced even further by the fact that it was over 90 minutes against Lyon and not necessarily over the two legs. He seems to obsess about the, 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 the strengths of the opposition to such an extent that he often undermines his own team's ability to do what he has instilled in them over and over again the philosophy that he is so desperate to try and make sure his team plays with so the the balance is not being struck the, the normal balance of success is to have a philosophy that works in an attacking sense with the possession of the football and ways of creating chances and scoring goals 
with that kind of foundation of making sure that you don't do it regardless, regardless of what the other team do, because that is, that is naive. So he's always obsessed about this idea that it, it must be, yes, the philosophy balanced with an ability to make sure that that team that you are playing on that occasion is stopped. And so what he tends to over-obsess with, and this is the, the narrative that, that, that is perpetuated, and it may, may be true, it may not be true. He is, he is so obsessed with Leon's ability to play with pace up front that he undermined his own ability or his own team's ability to create chances by having the creative players in the team that he would normally insist upon. Which is bizarre for a manager whose who's approach is so kind of focused on attacking and, and the damage that his team can wreak, that, that he should... You, you're right, that his, his initial kind of instinct is to be, is to be reactive rather than proactive in, the, in those games. I think there's two things that kind of stand out. One is that their record, City's record against the top seven-ish in the Premier League this year has been dreadful. They've, if it was any other team, you would say that they have been worked out by the teams of, of relative quality in the Premier League. So Wolves beat them home and away. Uh, Liverpool beat them at Anfield. I think they didn't beat Spurs. This season. They lost that Spurs and drew with Spurs at, at the Etihad. Wolves beat them playing the same way that Leon did on Saturday. Yeah, and that was I mean, the second thing. I think back threes confound Guardiola a little bit. I think that might be, or he's, he might feel that playing against the back three negates a lot of the benefits of his system. And it, it seems to be, and he's, he, I think he matched up against Wolves and Sheffield United this season. He went to a back three. Obviously, they've kind of got the players to do it. But, but there's, there's just certain stuff about it that I don't buy. I, don't, I, I hate this, he overthinks it. No other manager in the world is given the credit when they lose a game for being too clever. No one, else, no one else is told he's only lost that because he's so clever. It, it's purely and simply Guardiola calling it wrong. I saw people after the game on um, whatever night it was, Saturday night, sort of saying, oh, you know, it's, it's as, as you say, Hugh, it was, the individual, it was the individual mistakes, it was VAR, it was this, it was the other. You can't blame the coach. And you think, well, but if you can't blame the coach in those incidents, what, how the hell can you credit the coach in, with other games? Why, why would you give them just the just credit but none of the blame? Why, why would you dress Guardiola as a sort of tactical visionary and then when the tactics go wrong, say, well, the tactics aren't that important, actually. All of this is it's, it's bored, it's disingenuous at best and hypocritical at worst, and it really frustrates me. Um, you should give Guardiola the credit for being human. He, he's allowed to make wrong decisions. I think it all comes back to that first semi-final with Bayern Munich. When, when Real Madrid, when he decided in, in Munich, they lost, I think they lost 1-0 in, in Madrid, and he decided in Munich, I'm, I'm going to go for it. And Real picked them apart on the break, and they lost 4-0, and it was really humiliating. Something similar happened when they played Barcelona the following year, and I think it's just, I think it's just got in Guardiola's head a little bit that he can't be quite that expansive in Europe, despite the fact that not being expansive in Europe very clearly doesn't work either. And the other, the other aspects of it I find frustrating is, is and he, he touched on it, you know, the slow central defenders, you know, the flaws in City squad. It's the most expensive squad ever built. That is not an, ex, an excuse. It might be an explanation, but that is as much on you and the club as you call it, you, you, as you get your tactics wrong. You can't just say, well, our central defenders aren't quick enough. You could have bought literally any central defender in the world. If you've chosen the wrong ones, that's your fault. And that's where the money is a factor. And to go back to something that Hugh was talking about earlier, about freak occurrences contributing to some of these defeats in the quarterfinals of the Champions League, you make that investment, you do all that planning, 
and you prepare in pre-season and then during the course of a season as you refine and finesse these things to nullify freak occurrences. The reason why the elite teams keep winning is because the, those sorts of things are weighted in their favour. By attacking, they win more penalties than they concede. By spending money, exceptional sums of money on the outstanding quality players, you are buying your way out of a situation where individual mistakes might contribute to defeat. But the minute that you then, at a critical stage of the season, change those factors, where you should have been building up towards this point of delivering the perfection that you have spent so much time and resources cultivating, that you alter. You know, it, there's all sorts of things in all aspects of life in which you build towards that moment where you have to deliver to the highest possible ability that you can. And in almost none of those aspects, would you, just before you reach that point, make a critical change? So why are Manchester City doing it under Pep Guardiola, not just once, but for three successive seasons? There are so many advantages built in to being a super club that reaching the point where a, a marginal decision, a kind of momentary lapse of concentration, a, you know, a weird VAR call, and it was a weird VAR call the, for, the, for the second Leon goal, where you are susceptible to freak occurrences, that is in itself failure for a super club. Whichever of the super clubs it is, that you you might get one every now and again where you you, you get a you know bad red card after ten minutes and that's kind of fine, and it'll happen every now and again. No one's invincible. No one would would kind of pick that up and say, "Well, we'll kind of sack Guardiola immediately or sack Klopp or whatever." It will happen occasionally, but if you are consistently getting yourself to a point where you are susceptible to freak occurrences and you're in, char in charge of a super club and you have all of the inbuilt advantages of being in charge of a super club, you are not doing enough. That's the, that is the, the advantage that that wealth buys you. And I just wanted to jump in on the, the weird VAR call thing. Yes, more often than, you, than not, you would have expected that decision to go in Manchester City's favour. But we have to remember the way that these things happen and it's not just in the Premier League where there is confusion. The minute it is deemed that the referee saw that incident and decided to play in favour of Leon on the field, then the more likely it is going to stay with the on-field decision, unless it is seen, being seen as being clear and obvious. Now, you can have an argument about whether or not it was clear and obvious, but I don't think it is quite as freakish as people are making out because the referee had the ability to make the decision on the field, and that will always carry a huge amount of weight, whatever competition you're playing in. City were very, very unlucky, don't get me wrong, but I've seen lots of people on Twitter saying, why didn't the referee just at least go to the screen? Well, that's not a decision the referee makes unless he is, he is advised to go to the screen to reconsider his decision. And if everybody is satisfied that he was able to make a decision on the field that has a justifiable explanation to it, then that is why on that occasion it went in favour of Leon. However devastating that might have been to Manchester City. And, and the point about these freak occurrences, those, those who watch Manchester City regularly, more regularly than, than I do, than we do, will, will know that Manchester City on a very regular, very, very regular basis make chaotic defensive errors 
and miss chances. Now, they have glaring misses because they create so many. So you're going to therefore statistically have more misses than you might do. Otherwise, they'd be getting 10 to 15 goals every game. But also, they get away with those defensive errors because they are often already 3-0 up or they're in a game that is not necessarily as much covered or in terms of having all the eyeballs on it. And therefore, those mistakes are are seen by more eyes. But Chinch, I want to ask you about, about these mistakes. In terms of being a team that is often susceptible to not just small errors, but glaring errors, but also not converting the myriad chances that come their way, particularly from, you know, Raheem Sterling was, yes, it was an extraordinary example of that. But Manchester City miss a lot of chances. That has essentially been their main weakness this season, along with the fact that they've had these 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 individual mistakes and that's not going to be a successful team if you miss chances at one end and you make mistakes that often lead to a goal and that was the also the pattern that happened in Pep's first year in charge where every mistake they made made essentially led to a goal being conceded and they missed lots of chances so that that it's such a pattern that what what gives rise to this within a team what weakness do they have that these things keep on happening I would say also that huge amounts of money have been spent, but I look at that City team that, that started against Leon, and I just wonder how, how good actually is that team. And as you say, freak, if they keep happening, it's not freak currency, maybe with VAR, but missing chances and conceding soft goals. It also gets into the players' minds as well. I don't, know, I don't care how much work Guardiola does. If you go out thinking, is this going to be another one of those days where one defensive slip, one missed open goal is going to cost us a game? It, it plays on the players' minds. It has to do the human beings. I don't care how well drilled you are. But that's when I start to think now, has the doubt for the players? Does, is Guardiola someone who suffers self-doubt? He talks about overthinking, whether Roy thinks that's right or wrong. Is he starting to doubt whether he's getting this right? And are the club, most importantly, looking at Guardiola and saying, is he still in 2020 or next season the man to bring us the Champions League? Have the doubts now across the board started to kind of seep into the players, to Guardiola himself and to the club. Would they ever consider thinking somebody else, a Pochettino or someone else might be, in, in many people's eyes, in fans' eyes or fans of the game around the world, that say, well, Pochettino and Guardiola, there's no comparison. But could, it, could we be getting to the point where actually somebody else might be able to come in and do a better job because they're not Guardiola? I'll answer that flippantly before Roy comes in. In in terms of Guardiola, yes, he is a man racked with self-doubt because that's one of the reasons why he is who he is. The players, for the first time, we understand reports after the game that there may well have been some dissenting voices about the way that the team was set up against Lyon. And in Guardiola's defence, he may well have been thinking about beyond Lyon and to the, the potential uh, teams that they played, even though that's not necessarily how that's you go abs- about that's things. That's crazy, though. I mean, but, I have seen that. That, ju- that just is bonkers why would you do that and thirdly the club absolutely still think that uh, Guardiola is the man and that is going to be the final section of our conversation about the fact that he is still supported by the club to such a degree that his relative failures aren't necessarily going to be ones that that see him lose his job certainly in the short term there's an interesting bit in in Zlatan Ibrahimovic's um massively overblown slightly annoying autobiography that everybody loved 10 years ago but now is a little bit all right come on where he talks about Barcelona and how, um, and how Guardiola, he says basically Guardiola likes schoolboys. He, he wants his players to be like schoolboys. He, um, he wants people who sit there quietly and do as they're told. And I'm Zlatan, I'm a lion, blah, 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 blah. Um, so he doesn't do that. And he doesn't listen. I don't listen. I'm Zlatan. You know, don't you try and tell me what to do. I'm, I'm, I've got a ponytail. 
Um, and and it's annoying because it's Latan and it's a bit it's the sort of formation of a character that he's playing. Um, and I look forward to the days when he's invited onto Sky to do punditry and, and play that character. But th- I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I do wonder whether there's an element of something in it. I was really struck. I, I, I don't give a huge amount of credence to like Twitter, but and to the way players behave on Twitter. But I, I was really struck by by Amrit Laporte and, and Bernardo Silva, both seeming to get sort of drawn into into kind of a bit of Twitter sort of social media sniping. And it struck me as as odd that, they, that I think within within the, the city squad, I don't know how well they deal with setbacks. Overall, they seem to they seem a little bit kind of um, upset by the idea that things might not go in their favour, and they seem to genuinely find it hard to deal with the idea that everything isn't perfect all the time, and there's any criticism. I think that's something as that evidenced from... by those games that we mentioned about the, the ten minutes against Liverpool and the four minutes against Spurs. Yeah, that, so that's that is it, evidence yeah. in the micro and the macro. Yeah, so it, it's, I think it's, it, there's an element of that that is explained by by the, the cult of Pep, where if you're a true believer of the cult of Pep, any criticism of the cult of Pep is seen as kind of heresy and you have to react furiously to it. And that that 90% of the time in, in a football sense is probably a good thing, that, that he has that complete, that complete buy-in from his players. I don't think all of the players would necessarily be desperately sad to see him go. I think that there comes a point, and he'd probably admit it himself, where he is exhausting to work for. And that's, that's why they hit the heights that they do, but it's also why there's maybe a shelf life. Um, but I just found it, in- yeah, I find it interesting that they don't, they, they don't seem to react well to, to stuff going against them, to, to the, the ball not bouncing in their favour. And I, I do wonder whether part of the problem with Guardiola's teams, and it's not unique to Guardiola, I think it might be to do with, with the rise of the kind of super coach and the idea of kind of here is the Messiah and whether that's Guardiola or Klopp or whoever, here is the Messiah, they have all of the answers. His system, he can solve all of our problems. I think during games where things aren't going well for a team, you sometimes need the players to step up and say, I can see a problem here. I am going to address it. And I think it, they're not an example I, I, I would ever quote praisingly normally. But I think at Real Madrid in that, in that run, of, run of years when they were winning the Champions League, despite no one really being quite sure how, I think there were lots of people on the pitch who were empowered by Zidane to solve problems on their own. Guardiola doesn't work like that. He doesn't. Again, no. he's he's drilled his players to play his way. Well, yeah, he he wants, as Latan says, he 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 wants schoolboys who'll do as they're told. Yeah. And I think that that is enormously um, beneficial quite a lot of the time. But I think when things go wrong, it's not brilliant because they look to the touchline to solve their problems. And sometimes Pep doesn't have the answers because sometimes Pep or he he has two answers and chooses the wrong one. That's natural. Sometimes he doesn't have the answers and sometimes he does have the answer, but it arrives too late. And, and I think that if there's one thing missing from the City team, we, we also got, oh, they need leadership, they need strong characters. I think it's more kind of like an intellectual dynamism on the pitch rather than, rather than thinking the manager will solve this problem for me. It's, I can see a problem, I am going to sort it out. And then if that's the right decision, then I'll get praised. And if it's the wrong decision, my coach will tell me not to do it. I don't, there's an, an element of, like automation and when everything when one part stops everything just kind of grinds to a halt to an extent so when Guardiola was at Barcelona with Xavi in the team and Iniesta he had he had the best of everything he had players that were well drilled well schooled knew his ways but also had the brains to think for themselves and adjust if they needed to 
do you know, I don't want to sound really traditional in English about this, but I wonder whether of all that Barcelona team, and obviously it was built on Xavi and Iniesta and Messi mm-hmm. and stuff and their talent, but I wonder if the really important one was Carlos Puyol. Mm-hmm. Because Puyol would sort stuff out on the pitch. Well, so that's what I'm saying about City being good enough, whether it be mentally or physically. Our, yeah. our City, our City. Did you look at the, the Champions League makeup at the quarterfinal? Did you think City can win this with the team? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. They, they, of course, they can. They had no doubts at all that, that that they could do. They're, they're one of the I, best. Say the top two. Uh, I think they're well on, on form. They're probably in the top three in Europe, I guess, with Bayern and Liverpool. It's mm-hmm. difficult to tell with Liverpool because they they switched off mm-hmm. a bit after they won the title. But I'd say that they've been the three outstanding teams of this season on the, on the day. But then City didn't get that many points in the Premier League by their standards. They, they had a disappointing Premier League season. But I just wonder whether... So when company left, we, you know, we all said, you know, do City lack leadership? Do those martial values that... that Pablo Zabaleta as well, yeah. Yeah, that the English love. But I don't, know if, I don't think that's what they're missing. I think what they might be missing is someone who's prepared to say, I can see what is going on here. And I know what, what I have to do to solve the problem. Yeah, but with, with Guardiola, surely they, they turn to the bench and say, what do you that, want me yeah. to do? And that, that is the problem itself. By the time you've decided what he tells you, it's too late, something could have happened, it could have cost you the game. But also, there's, there's, no, there's no dissenting voice. So his number, when he replaced Arteta as number two, I don't, I don't think Arteta was a dissenting voice, but when he replaced him, he went and got Juan Malilo, who's, this kind of, who's one of Guardiola's mentors, who's totally steeped in, in the same way of thinking as Guardiola. I don't think there's, any, there's anyone there saying what about this? So Steve said, you know, is there someone at City who can say, why aren't we sitting with plan A? The short answer is now, I don't think there is. I think that the people around Pep, the players that they've got, are all such fully signed up members of the manager has all the answers, that there is this kind of a purity of thought, a, a fundamentalism that isn't particularly healthy. And when things start to go wrong, on the relatively rare occasions they do, I think City have a problem because they can't turn it around. Yeah, I think that there are lots of examples of good teams falling short where you would say the players should have taken more responsibility. But I don't feel that Manchester City fall into that category because all of those players have been bought either by or for Pep and drilled to play in the way that Pep wants them to play. He, he is the leader, isn't he? So it's very difficult for the players under those circumstances and under the terms of, effectively under the terms of their, their particular employment to say, to get together and say, lads, this isn't working. Forget what we were told in the dressing room before the game. Let's go and do what we know we're capable of doing because I, that, that wouldn't go well. And at the risk of adding a further layer of complication to a discussion in which effectively we are saying somebody overcomplicates something, is that I do wonder whether there is an element of because City can win with play, plan A so efficiently, that is there something in Pep's mind that that isn't satisfactory to him when it comes to the big games is beating Leon in a Champions League quarterfinal in the way that they obliterate Burnley or West Ham mm-hmm. routinely in the Premier League. Is that not good enough for him? Does he feel a, a need to not just to, to win, but to win gaining additional credit for doing it in some revolutionary new way? And, but then you, ha- you have to win, Steve. You have to win, then, Steve, don't you? Yeah, you of course you do. It, but say, but well, this is completely. Yeah, we can see why. Well, you can explain why you've done it, but you haven't won. So win. You have to win doing things like that. But again, is that is that a layer of the overcomplicating of things? Have we been through my Venga theory? <laughs> Venga boys. Venga boys. We all got yeah. Venga. No, let's go for it. We, we needed a tangent. So my theory is that the Venga bus is coming, <laughs> and everybody's jumping. And where are we going? San Francisco. 
a no. pizza. It'd be, hang on, were they not going to San Francisco, the Render Boys? Weren't they going to both? Well, they don't, well, that is a difficult journey. I mean, it's essentially some sort of global cruise. It's going to take you four months. <laughs> it was, I was led to believe they were going to San Francisco to visit some sort of disco. <laughs> that, I believe, was what was happening. <laughs> Uh, the end. A Frisco disco. I was just wondering where the clip was coming from, so uh, thanks, <laughs> we've managed to box that bit off. So I think that the, the point at which managers kind of crest their wave and, and go from their peak to the decline is where winning itself becomes less important than, than proving themselves right. And Wenger's the best example of it, but the, it kind of, it struck me most with Benitez, that there came a point where Benitez was unwilling to, to change the way his, team, his teams played because he wanted to prove that his systems were that he'd been right all along, and I do wonder whether there's, it's happened to it happened to Mourinho as well. That Mourinho, for all the talk of oh I've changed, I, I now believe in attacking football, whatever, he's never really been able to do that because Mourinho's ultimate loyalty is not to the team that he's coaching, but to his reputation and his legacy, and he wants to prove that he is he has been right all along, and all this stupid way that these fancy people play football is wrong, and the Mourinho way is correct. Wenger obviously did it and refused to kind of or either refused or didn't have the ability to, to change. And I do wonder whether that point will come for Pep, just as it will come for Klopp. It comes for all of them. That there comes a point where you are so wedded to your ideals that you will not countenance the idea that you might have to do something different to be ultimately successful. And that runs slightly contrary to what Pep's doing in Europe, that he's, he seems to be, as Steve said, like minimising his ideals. He's turning City into something else, a team that's not a pep team. But I, I wonder with him whether maybe, I don't know, maybe it manifests in that his, his belief is that it, it has to be some clever system that he can, he can unearth that solves the problem rather than saying to the players, do this, you know, do what you normally do. He, want, he wants to be the one who wins it rather than, than the team. He wants it to be his idea that is the most important thing. That's so my, win, so, my yeah, working so, theory. The so winning in an obvious way, is, is not good enough for these guys. They've got to be seen to be doing more or doing it differently because that's what all the other coaches would do. They'd, they'd play a certain way and win playing 4-2-3-1. But I, I can play that way, but I don't want to. I want to do something a little bit. But again, you've got to, if you do that and you tweak it and you're trying to show how clever you are, if that's what you're doing, you, you've got to win because you look a fool when it doesn't work. And so well, like a CC, so why, why don't you just play a bit more of a basic system and, and win the game? Yeah, I think, I, but I think, you know, Pep's slightly different to the others that Rory mentioned who insisted that we will find a way of winning the way that I want to win, whereas Pep conversely keeps winning the way he usually wants to win, but then suddenly changes it when it comes to the critical moment. Because do you know what, we're really under the spotlight now, and I and I want addition. Winning isn't enough. To strike a bit of balance here, we are often praising those who are proactive in trying to find a way that works against those who are figuring out how to stop your previous way. Uh, we should probably be mindful of the fact that if somebody's trying something that may well bear fruit at some point when other teams catch up, that if that doesn't work, then them trying it is surely, uh, partly, Steve, I, I appreciate that, that it might be based on ego and a desire to to, to to be the winner and my ego <laughs> well it may well be but the, but you can you can understand that, that there needs to be a balance to that because if it works clearly that's something that you have to try for it to fail or to to, to work so that there are those situations where there it isn't based on ego it is based on a, a genuine desire to try and uh, be a step ahead of the rest when 
others are catching up perhaps quicker than they were at the beginning of that person's career because their philosophy was so new and it took so many uh, other teams so long to figure it out. But I just want to end the conversation about this, this element of, of, of relative failure because is, is Pep suffering at the hands of the success that he has brought to all his teams, but notably to Manchester City because the four domestic cups and two Premier League trophies, even though the, the Champions League hasn't been delivered, not many managers would have that CV and you'd be focusing on the failure. And I appreciate we're focusing on the relative failure because it's happened in the last few days. But there are, there are clubs who have expectations that you fall short of and a manager will lose their job. But Pep seems to be the kind of person, and this might be something that he would delight in hearing, but the kind of person who has such a reputation that he's failing his own expectations rather than just those of a club who support him so firmly regardless regardless of the club's expectations it's about pep not meeting his own expectations that he has of himself and we all have of him and so the failure is a is a strangely personal one even though he is representing his club and trying to win a champions league for them yeah to an extent i think there's probably an element of that 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 we we have built correctly guardiola up as a kind of generational talent as a manager and we expect to be for him, for him to prove that to meet those expectations i think there's an element of that and it would be ridiculous to say that Pep has been a failure in England or that he has not been a net good. I think Henry Winter tweeted to say that kind of the criticism of Pep is, is absolutely absurd. And you think, well, there isn't really any criticism of Pep, is there? Because we've been saying for four years what a genius he is. Like, what literally, what more do you want people to say than Pep? I know, I know there's all the fraudiola stuff, but that's fans of other clubs talking him down because it, suit, it makes them feel better. He is the best manager of his generation. That is how everyone discusses him. Um, but at the same time, he's not won the Champions League for nine years. He's not been to a final since 2011. He's not been to a semi-final since 2015, 2016. Um, that's not really good enough given the resources he has at his disposal. City remained completely loyal behind him, but he was brought in to win the Champions League. That's why he's there. That's why they built this club for him to his exact specifications. And also, if he was to leave at the end of his contract next year, do we think that two lead titles, say they, say they win it next year, which I think they most likely will, three lead titles out of five, no Champions League, would that be par, below par, above par? I don't know. I, mean, I realise par, I don't do golf, so I don't know which one's Surely a Champions League final should have been in there. Yeah, I would have thought so. I would have thought... They win it or not, but getting to a final, they've not even got to a final. Well, look, Benitez, to give him his due, always used to say that, that as a manager, all you could... He, he always thought that all you could aim for was the semi-finals. He thought you could control mm -hmm. it until the semi-finals. Yeah. And after that point, to an extent, you were, you were at the mercy of things like bad refereeing decisions, injuries, exhaustion, fatigue, weird things happening. But that's, um, that's Pep's theory for knockout football completely. So he would, he would take that from Rafa Benitez and he'd take it back to the last 16. And I think that, that infects some of the preparation. Possibly, yeah. yeah possibly. Each and every one of these knockout games, not just when you get to the semi-final, which is probably one of the reasons he hasn't got to a semi-final. But you, you, you mentioned par. The, the fact is, is that the par for Pep is a bar that is much higher than other people's bar for a par. And so you, you, you are, and that, that's the, the essence of this part of the conversation, is that us saying whether Pep has reached expectations or has achieved par for his time at Manchester City when so that ends is that unfair on him because of the incredible expectations we have on him uh, the only point I wanted to make really was uh, I think again 
are, are there any similarities between Mourinho and Guardiola in terms of are they are they coaching? Are they managing for their own legacies now? Have they got to a point where it's about them being talked about, not the clubs that they're actually trying to win things for? Is Guardiola still different from Mourinho in that regard? So I agree with what you're saying, Rory, about Mourinho and his legacy. It is all about him. Is Guardiola still trying to win things for City? Or is he... Well, he hasn't won it, so presumably he will say that. But again, for his own legacy, we all consider him to be one of a genius coach and everything else, and he always will be 50, 60, 70 years on from now. But is he, is he thinking about how people perceive him? Or is, is it still he is Man City? Man <laughs> City better, are him, or is it, just, is it about him now? But is he, he coaching better, for himself? But he's got, to, he's got to win for that to be the case. He hasn't won the Champions League, so each and every step yeah. he takes towards not winning the Champions League affects yes. him just as much as it affects Manchester City. He cannot win... He cannot not win the Champions League and then consider how that might affect his legacy. He's got to win the Champions League. That, that will be the thing. But is it, what I'm saying is, is he winning it? Again, yes, I absolutely agree because he's, he's, he's a Champions League winning coach, but he hasn't won it with City. But is he, is he trying, if, when he wins it, if he does win it with City, will he think, I've won it? Or will he think City have won it? I, th- I think in the context of this conversation, it's not so much how Pep will reflect upon that achievement as how everyone else will be, because he's been there long enough now that the two things are, are, are intertwined, aren't they? He is the key component of that, that expensive project that Manchester City have been running for the last decade or so. They, they'd already won the Premier League. They'd won the Premier League pre-Pep. Pep arrived to deliver a bit more stability and, and successive Premier League titles he delivered on, on, in that regard. But winning the Champions League, that was, was surely one of the main things, not only for bringing him in, but the investment either that has been made since he arrived or that was made in his name prior to his arrival, because that is a factor in this. It wasn't a standing start for Pep in terms of achieving this. He got a running start at it. So to help Rory out with his golf analogy, I would suggest that in four years, two Premier Leagues, one FA Cup and not getting past the Champions League quarterfinal – it isn't par, and in fact, he's stood over a pretty tricky putt for bogey. This is uh, this is completely ignoring the mighty achievement of three uh, league cups. Of you, course, you don't you don't spend a billion pounds to win the league cup. You, you, you might we, do to win it three times you, in you, a row. You might spend a lot of money to get that first trophy, but nobody is congratulating <laughs> themselves for the league cup on the basis of that investment. Are you saying that you drive for show, that's the league cup, but you putt for dough, that's the champions <laughs> Exactly league. what he said. Exactly. Um, Chinch, I just want to, before you come in, I just want to ask a very quick question because you might well be ending up answering this. The determination that Manchester City need to make or what fans need to make is which bond is stronger? Is the bond of Manchester City's hierarchy and board with Pep as their guy and their guy prior to being a Manchester City board and manager, is that stronger than their desire to win the Champions League for Manchester City? Because if they decide that Pep is the stronger bond, regardless of what Manchester City do in the, in, in the Champions League over the course of his time with the club, it doesn't matter because that's the strongest bond. They're not going to get rid of Pep because of his underachievement in the Champions League or his inability to deliver what he was brought to do because actually it doesn't have any effect because the bond is between the board and Pep. The bond is not delivering the Champions League regardless of who's in charge. It's, it's off the back of what Steve was saying. Is Guardiola still the key component, component in Man City winning the Champions League? And if the bond between the, the hierarchy and Pep is, is so strong that that is going to continue regardless of whether it be freak occurrences, individual errors, 
is if it keeps happening season on season, is it because it's not our fault? It's not Pep's fault. It's not the tactics. It's it's other influences that are causing us not to achieve or even to get to a semi final. I think you have to look a little bit more into that. And ultimately, there will come a point when if it happens again next season and they don't win it. I suppose Pep himself will say, I was brought in, in here. Will he say, well, look, I, I've tried the best and we spent as much money as we have. I've done the best that I can. It's not worked out. Or will they continue to say, no, we, we still believe in what you're doing in 2021. It's, you're still the guy that, that, that we believe can win it for us ultimately. Is he still the key component in winning the Champions League? We know the Premier League and the League Cup, they seem to have that, that nailed. There's no problem there. But it's, it's the Champions League now. City have moved on mentally. They've moved on to saying we need to compete at the top end in Europe. And that doesn't seem to be happening. And it's been highlighted more in the fact they've got Guardiola as their head coach. It seems to be maybe other teams, if it wasn't Guardiola, if this was maybe Pochettino, would it still be talked about in the same way as it is with, with Guardiola in charge? And that's the interesting contradiction of Guardiola's situation with Manchester City. Because yes, he came with high expectations. And one of those key expectations has not been delivered upon. So that is what has led to thoughts about the vulnerability of his position. But then you look at the relationships he has with the key executives at the club. And that strengthens his position because everybody is bought into the same philosophy. So there's that, that intertwining of football management and executive management. That, that gives him a little bit more security, perhaps, than somebody else who'd come with those expectations and has delivered what he's delivered, but not quite what they'd hoped for. It, it, is a, it is a bizarre contradiction, and I'm not sure it's something that we would see in too many, under too many other circumstances. But would this, would this union between the hierarchy and Pep Guardiola go on for the next five years, if allowed to? Would, would the club say, he's our guy, we stick with it, come hello high water, th th this is our plan? I think if Guardiola was amenable to it, then City would sit with him indefinitely, to be honest. I don't think they can sack him or have any desire to sack him. And the, the, the bond that they originally had has been strengthened by his achievements with the club to such an extent that this relative failure in the Champions League is not something which is undermining yeah. that bond. The only dissension that you hear is with some of the City fans who most, to a massive majority, would say the same thing, that what he has delivered for them is undermined only very slightly, only at the very most, very slightly by this uh, underachievement in the Champions League relative to that, because they have the same belief that the board does, and I imagine that Pep Guardiola does, that it will eventually happen, and that it has been scuppered by these extraordinary freak occurrences and everything being against them, and their relationship with UEFA undermining all that. So they have a number of things to make them feel better about the strength of that bond, not just with Pep and the club, but also with what Pep has delivered uh, for those fans. And one thing you can say, and you're right, Rory, if, if he wants to stay, they will be happy with that. But winning the Champions League, when eventually or if eventually it happens, will be the perfect out for all parties. It will give Pep Guardiola an opportunity to leave on the best terms possible. The fans will be forgiving of him leaving because he has delivered something that they haven't had before. And it obviously will mean so much because of everything that's happened prior to it. And clearly the board would be happy to let him go because he has achieved for them what they set out for him to achieve. But there's absolutely no embarrassment, you feel, at City or from Guardiola himself at not having even got to a final. You don't think it's any embarrassment whatsoever considering the money that's been spent and, and the philosophy that he's had and, and how he's been lauded as a, the greatest coach for his generation. You don't think there's any embarrassment at all about what's happened over the last few seasons? I believe that the board are very much um, 
aligned with Pep Guardiola and a lot of fans in their thinking that this has been stacked against them, that the uh, occurrences during the games have been the chief uh, arbiters as to their fate, and it hasn't been anything other than that that has been the, ch the chief reason why they failed. Um, it is not necessarily the most accurate view, but it is, it is the view I imagine I don't know if you agree, Rory, but is the, the, the view from within the club that is much more likely to persist, even in the fact that it's happened three years after three. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone at City thinks it's anything other than a freak development because of, as you say, bad refereeing, corrupt UEFA, freak results, freak mistakes. I, th I, I don't think anyone at City is capable of thinking Pep Guardiola is anything less than flawless. It is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when our flawless pundit, Andy Inchcliffe, tells us a tale from his playing and broadcasting days of all adult behaviour and life worth he's removed. You kind of you just garbled that last bit. You just said it too many times over the years. Not, I, when I said flawless, I had a little bit of sick in my mouth. Oh, did you? Did it, speak. Yeah. Did, it, did it come back up again? You get to, you get to my age, 50, <clears throat> and you start to look back over your life and your, your time in football and wonder about all the time that you wasted. I wasted a lot of time on the pitch because I was bloody awful most of the time. But when I, when I watch modern players, it's about music, this one. How's it about music, strangely? Finch loves music. I love, me, I, I love music. He loves to dance. I, not, I should see me in Julie's pump class. My, my choreography is all over the place. Anyway, that's a completely another story. You, you know when you see players walking into games these days, mm -hmm. you know when the squad arrives, what, what thing do you notice more than any other about players when they, they walk in? Headphones in. Headphones in or Bluetooth, they're just not looking at anybody, not speaking to anybody. Now, this is clearly, back in the day, we, we didn't have anything. We did have headphones, but we didn't have kind of Bluetooth and phones weren't all the rage. So what we had to do on, a, on, on away trips or when we were on the coach is we used to have, remember VHS tapes? Absolutely. Are you old enough to, do, you still, do you still have any? Yes, Jins, we're not eight. No, but do you still have any? Uh, no. Oh, that's a good question. No, but, ah, you say, oh, I don't remember. But you don't have a VHS player or VHS. You don't have any of these things, do you? It's, it's a redundant technology. It's the kind of it, thing that's in your parents' loft. It I wasn't back in the 90s with Everton. It was a very important technology, if you can oh. call it a technology. Because I don't have a horse and car either. <laughs> oh, shut up. The time I wasted at home with my... Bringing, well, I was meant to be bringing up my small children. And what I was doing, I was watching MTV... And because I was, I don't know, was I the Mixmaster General? I probably was. I was the video jock for, uh, for Everton. So I put this three hour, and it wasn't just one. We had many, many hours and hours. I used to tape, record off MTV. I'm not getting myself in trouble here. Can MTV no. sue me no. for taking their trip? I'm not worry about it. That's not, not, not going to be the thing that uh, most oh, good. you at the end of this story. Oh, good. Yeah. So I used to spend, you know, watching MTV, MTV, and getting all the different songs to put onto a tape which we would then play, you know, to really get ourselves going before we played against Hartlepool away. And I, why, did I, why did I consider that to be? Because the music was just pants. But there I was at home, hour after hour, watching MTV while my children were, you know, running with scissors and stuff like that. I didn't have any, you know, what am I doing? What am I doing with myself? Why did I waste so many hours and hours of VHS tape for the, for the benefit of Neville Southall, who doesn't care whether, you know, he listens to Belinda Carlisle or not. But there was me. Oh, I've not got that one. I'll have to record that one and then just stop it the right time and then make sure I edit it properly so it all runs together smooth. What was I thinking? Who would do that these days? They wouldn't have to do it because they've all got their own playlists, haven't they, modern players? But I went to all that trouble for my fellow players when I really didn't care that much about... I didn't care that much about what happened on the pitch. It seemed to be more important to me that they got a good... You know, a good pop grounding before we went out and played a big match. Wasted time. 
this is essentially you doing a mixtape, not yes. for not not for a teenage girlfriend, but for a bunch of middle to slightly younger age gentlemen. An early thirties Welsh bin man. You know what? <laughs> what was that? What was that? But again, I, I do feel that played a huge part in my role in single-handedly winning the 1995 FA Cup. Because I'm sure the, the tape, the mixtape that I created, the, the videotape I created, really did get us going for that massive 1-0 win against United. And many, many other matches as well, which we won. Yeah, it, Belinda Carlisle, it's right up there with Eye of the Tiger to get the juices <laughs> pumped in the Wembley that Tunnel, Chief. Just at the end, I'd probably time that just as, you know, as we pulled into the car park, bang, Eye of the Tiger, and we'd be absolutely at it, even though the game didn't kick off for another hour and a half. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy, and Rory. And to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Can you actually remember any of the songs, Chinch? Well, they're all kind of 90s, you know, dance numbers and stuff like that, you know. So, you know, soul to soul and all that kind of stuff uh, in there, you know? Yeah, a bit of cross. I didn't just go, you know white boy rock you know I, I went for across the board to try and appeal to every taste there wasn't any classical music in there there should have been you know there's no uh, I don't know what, what should I have I mean I yeah yeah, yeah I maybe should have you know more Giorgio Moroder and that style but I didn't you know I didn't Vangelis maybe I, I just didn't didn't really think about it I just wanted to see a hot pump no that isn't classical <laughs> that's, 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 not clown. I'm trying that's to electronic say, soundtrack yes music. it is but I'm trying to say should I have maybe you know Blue Man Group should I really have you know stretched out a little bit and really pushed the boundaries because I'm sure Pat Nevin would have appreciated it Chinch's de definition of classical music is something that didn't make the top 40 on Radio <laughs> 1 well yeah because I did actually that's what I tended to do I when MTV had their kind of top 20 countdown that was kind of I had to I had to watch that because that's where I got the the main bulk of my of my videos from are you telling me you didn't manage to squeeze in Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen oh that was on there absolutely <laughs> that was on there and people would then throw you know oranges and apples at the TV and say what the hell is this on for and I said listen to this it's going to change your life and it never did